Hello, welcome to another episode of I Love Rock and Roll. I'm your co- and I am Chip Chantry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your co-host I, I Ken Kranz. I almost got it. Um, I'm really excited today. We we have uh, we have our first non-comedian guest, and um, we have the director and writer of the Joe Bryath AD documentary that neither one of us has shut up about for two months now. They we really have, we haven't. Not. They really haven't. <laughs> we really haven't. I, either have so many of our friends and listeners. I think it's. I, I believe it's our, our biggest, one of our biggest, if not the biggest uh, number of shares or the number of listens uh, for our, our podcast. But I, I think that the great thing about it, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times, Karen, was the fact that uh, we, di- I didn't know anything about him. Either did Ken. We knew nothing about this guy. Obviously, for obvious reasons, there's not much out there. And then we just sort of stumbled upon this. Ken stumbled upon this documentary and he said, here's this thing and let's watch it. And, and, I, and I watched and I was like, yeah, w- whatever. I, I, you know, could be and by the end of it i mean by halfway through it i was just blown away and couldn't stop talking about it and just such an amazing story well thank you well first of all thanks for having me on i i um i stumbled upon your show and uh, i think i i saw a posting about it on twitter and uh and i clicked on it and i was like wow this is really these guys are really passionate about about music and and about you know sort of unsung stories so, uh, and I don't usually, I'm not a podcast person and I don't usually listen to them and I certainly don't hang in, but I hung in through the whole show and not just because it was about something. <laughs> because believe me, I've run into things like that before and I've only been able to look at or listen to like two minutes of it and I'm out. Um, but uh, no, I thought you guys did a, a great job. Um and I'm glad you introduced me as a non-comedian. So the pressure to be funny is like totally. Off. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I guess, and Kent, I apologize. I think I jumped in. Do you want to give him a, a, like an official oh, yeah, uh, introduction I with his name? And oh, everything? I, I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, please welcome to the show, Kieran Turner. Oh, thanks. Thanks, guys. Hi. Nice to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I you, don't... you see, we're, we're pretty professional and organized yeah. over here. Yeah. You said you're not a podcast person. Either are we. Either to be totally honest. <laughs> We're just figuring. I've actually I've never listened to a podcast in my entire life. Yeah, I didn't even know what they were until. Yeah, uh, I, until yeah, I have started. a I, my friend who's my next door neighbor does a podcast, and I I've never admitted to him that I've never listened to his podcast, and I talk to him almost every day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like you know you couldn't I don't know usually drag me to listen to one, but uh, so but you can't no, listen to this music, one now. It's it's great. So and I've actually listened to a few more of your um of your shows since then. So oh, okay. oh wow. I praise. So now um I, I, I think I, I don't want to tell people who are listening right now not to listen to this episode, but you if you have haven't yet, go back and listen to our episode about the documentary Joe Bryath A D uh from a few weeks ago. And also watch it. It's available on Kieran, you might be able to tell us a bit more. I know we got it through Amazon. And- yeah, it's on Amazon through a bunch of different subscription things. And uh, and I probably shouldn't say this, but I don't care. Um, you know, most of those subscription things you can join for like a week or a right. month for free and then, and then boot it out. Um, so you can join, watch my movie, and then like say goodbye to it without having to pay for it. Um, and it's on iTunes. Um, it's, uh, also available on, uh, DVD in a regular version and in a deluxe version, which has a, uh, a color vinyl 
which I'm really proud of, um, which features a full LP of demos from a musical that he wrote, which I guess we can talk about, you know, later when sure. we sort of come about it. Um, uh, you know, we can bring that up. It, it, I'm sorry. Can you say that again? It, it came. It comes with what? What from the musical? Oh, um, when I was doing research on him, uh, you know, I, I think you guys in in the podcast talked a little bit about Sunday brunch, um, mm -hmm. which is, I think, my favorite. I have a couple of questions about that because I think it's like my favorite part of. I think, but my of, of the music that I heard, which, which was so great, that one yeah. was I feel like the most promising in the thing that I was like, this was going to be, he was going to be the next Andrew Lloyd Webber, like this was going to be the next big thing. Yeah. Well, you guys have to give me uh, like when we're when we're done with this, give me your address because I have I have extras and I will send you this if you have oh, a record player. Yeah, I do. Oh, I would you. love that. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank um, you. Because what this is is. Um, he wrote a first musical when he did the misanthrope, you know, I know you guys are talking about that. Um, Joe Papp was so grateful to him for coming in and rewriting the score that he put Joe Bryth together with his wife, Gail, who is a dramaturg at the public theater. And they were working on a musical that had two different titles. The first was the beauty saloon. And then it was called pop star. And it was basically a thinly veiled uh, Ramona Clay about Joe Bryath and Jerry Brandt. So it was about this world famous rock star named BJ Strobe, whose manager uh, like absconded with all of his money. And so he runs away to this uh, tropical island where he reinvents himself as this cabaret singer and he opens up this this uh this club and um anyway he had i i was given two tapes by uh by a friend of his one was joe bryath playing piano uh singing and narrating the show in joe pap's office for oh, joe wow. pap and then the second one was uh, a more polished demo of about a half dozen songs with him singing and a couple of other session singers and, you know, with more music. So uh, I basically took those tracks, remastered them, fixed them up, uh, put them on vinyl and wrote uh, a whole set of liner notes talking about what the musical was. Um, and uh, it was put out for record store day in 2015, along with the, the DVD of the film. So, uh, and there are some amazing songs uh, on that collection. Um, and you can really hear, even more than Sunday Brunch, that Joe Bryath, had he not gotten sick, was, you know, really likely destined uh, to be successful uh, in musical theater as a composer. Yeah, oh. absolutely. Like, that's where it seemed like he was, you know, on, on the road too, which yeah. was great. Um, so yeah, and the, like my favorite song is this great thing. It's this great rock song called Time Sat on My Face. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love for you guys to hear that stuff. And I don't, and I, I don't send it out digitally. So if you guys have uh, vinyl, yes. I will. Yeah, oh, that'd be I'll, great. Thank you. That would be amazing. Ken, I'm coming over to your house. <laughs> <laughs> So here's here's what jumped out at me about um, when I came when I came across the trailer and started watching it. 
I assumed because I consider myself very well versed in music, especially glam rock. I was, I was, uh, I was maybe 12 or 13 years old and my brother sat me down with a copy of David live on cassette and I put it in my Walkman and I may or may not have smoked a joint at that young age. And, um, within two minutes, my entire life had changed. Like I was just transfixed into this other world that I'd never known anything about, you know, but before then I was, I was listening to Huey Lewis in Chicago, Mm -hmm. like whatever was on, you know, whatever was on my parents' radio at the time. And, um, so I, I dove pretty hard into that era and it's still a lot of my favorite music. Um, the dolls and Bowie and Iggy and Lou Reed. So I, I know so much about that era. And then when I was watching your film, I was like, how is it possible? I have never heard of this guy in my entire life. And then the conclusion I made was the music must've sucked. It must've just been shitty music. And the dude was overhyped. And then, um, I went on to YouTube and I started listening to the music and I may or may not have smoked a joint and put on headphones. <laughs> and um, it was, it was great. Like I, I was struck by how good it was. And then I yeah. really couldn't understand why I'd never heard of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I was not, a fan. I had heard of him um, just because I I'm really into '70s and I'm I'm into to gay history. So I had heard of him, but you know, pre this documentary, if you had ever really you know looked up Joe Bryth, it was always people speaking disparagingly about him, and the music was not really available. It had been out of print for many years. Um, and, you know, I had always taken what people had said about the music um, to be gospel, because if you look at the images, he looks ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, the, the photos of him, I was, you know, as a gay man, I was kind of embarrassed. But that's me from a, you know, 34. 30 year standpoint, you know, of, of looking back at it. So I, I assume, well, I guess this is what must have flown in, you know, in 73, but it, it looks really silly. So, um, uh, you know, back, I want to say like back in 2007, I was, uh, you know, bullshitting around on, on Amazon and they recommended this compilation that Morrissey had put together of Joe Bryant's uh, music that he had released on his own label. So as a lark, I bought it, figuring I would have a good laugh about it, and it would be really awful because I, I love bad stuff, too. right? You know, I love right. that movie, sure. yeah, you know. Um, and uh, so I got it, I put it in, and I was shocked how good the music was. And when I heard how good the music was, I had to, I had to know what happened. I had no desire to make a documentary. I was, you know, I was on a narrative film path. And um, when I, you know, within a couple of days of doing research of uh, on Joe Bryant, I was like, I, I have to tell the story. I have to. I, I was just compelled to. And, um, you know, and I, I thought, how can somebody so talented have have, you know, have failed so spectacularly? It just doesn't make any sense. 
you know, um, and back then, you know, his music, other than the Morrissey thing, his music was out of print. And, you know, and I'm happy to say that thanks to, in part to resurgence of interest in him because of the documentary, you know, uh, Warner put his stuff up on, you know, on streaming and put the stuff back in print. And, and uh, so, you know, that for me was the most gratifying thing because when you hear something you love or when you experience something you love, you want to share it with everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. You just go, oh my God, listen to this great thing that I discovered and you have to love it as much as I do. And well, it's okay if you don't, but I really wish you would, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and one of the things that, I think you you put across in the documentary and, and that I've read about him and that you can see is he is a as, a as a human being and also as an artist definitely there was many different stages and he yeah. sort of he took on different personas he took on different personalities throughout his entire life uh just musically you know you started with this teenager who's composing classical music then you have his sort of Broadway you know he's in hair uh, mm -hmm. Then he has, I guess, Pigeon was the band that that he that he had for a while, which seemed like it was basically him. And yeah. then, of course, the Joe Bryath era. And then you go to more of the cabaret, and then writing the the musicals. You know, back back to that. Uh, do you have a favorite Joe Bryath era uh, or work or just era that you thought this is his strongest, best uh, that best stuff, or that re resounded with you the most? Good question. Um, I would say that um, personally, there were demos that he recorded before uh, when he went into the studio to work with uh, Richie uh, pa Podler and Cooper, uh, those two producers. Um, and he did a demo of like five or, or eight songs. And I think some of that is is really strong. Um, he then wound up recording it, but it never made any of the albums. The stuff that he was doing, Little Dreamer, As the River Flows. Personally, Little Dreamer is my favorite song of his. Um, I actually got a tattoo of uh, lyrics uh, from that song. Um because uh, it, it meant so much to me. Um, and, you know, and just making the documentary meant so much to me. But, um, you know, I, I have to say that in terms of, of, I like everything he did. The stuff, the only stuff that I didn't like, you didn't hear. Okay. I had some demos that he had done right before he died. And it sounded like bad Carol Bayer Sager songs, you know? <laughs> Like stuff that that you know were were left off of of Melissa Manchester's you know, <laughs> final album, <laughs> really bad stuff. Um, but uh, other than that, I just I am blown away by how versatilely talented he was, um, and uh, I mean it was almost like an embarrassment of riches, um, you know, just how talented he was. So did I saw right around the time of Joe Bryath AD that they released as the river flows as yeah. um, like some upstate New York, small indie label. Was that yeah. a direct result of your documentary or um, it was, and I was a That's... little pissed at them because um, although I have to say that it actually worked out fine. Um, I was working with, uh, with Podler and Cooper to, to have that music be on that extra record. Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, for record store day. And um, they sort of went behind my back and made a deal with those guys, um, which sort of threw me into turmoil. Like, what am I going to do? What, what music am I going to release? Um, because the stuff from Popstar was just not in, sonically not in shape to put on an album. Um, but I wanted to do it, I, you know, and I mean, I'm, look, I, I got over it and, and, you know, I threw a little hissy fit about it and, and, you know, moved on. And, right. and as far as I'm concerned, you know, the more Joe Bryant music that's out there, the better. Um, but yes, that was definitely a direct result. That is so crazy to me, like to, to, to see the fruition of something like that, where, where you, on a lark, you you discover this CD, and then you you it's it won't leave your head, and then you're like, I got to tell this story, and and be directly because of you, this this music has sort of been reintroduced to the world. It, it it's very weird, and and I went through a long period where I just couldn't make sense, and it's I guess it's a stupid thing to say, but. I couldn't make sense of, you know, why me? You know, just in terms of like, I never met this guy. I don't have any connection to him. I wasn't a lifelong fan, but yet I'm now responsible for telling his story. And, and that's just, it's just such a weird thing to have a connection with somebody that you never met and don't have any connection with who's been long dead, but Yet, you know, now he's in your hands, you know, and then you better not fuck it up. Right. Because, you know, this is the only chance like he's going to likely get. And if you do this, if you do a bad job or if you if you mess up in any way, then that's it. You know, you've 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 not served this person and you've not and you've you've tarnished whatever little legacy there would be. Um so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just thankful that, that anybody responded to it and that they're keeping his name out there. I mean, that's all I wanted to do with this. So as far as I'm concerned, I feel like it was successful. Like it, don't like it. You know, the, nobody likes everything. Right. So, you know, it, it doesn't bother me if somebody watches it and goes, Meh, you know, or, or doesn't respond to the music because enough people have that I'm, I'm really happy, but yeah, it's a weird thing. But and, not- and I don't want to, I don't want to second guess you or, you know, hindsight is 2020. I think just to give my own two cents, I think one thing that would have made your movie so much more bigger, so much bigger and better is if you put a billboard on the side of every single bus <laughs> in New York and London and Paris. Did you think about doing that? I thought just maybe- having your face <laughs> plastered on buses. I mean, you, you, you don't sound like a marketing genius. I think that's what needed to happen. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean to tell you how to do your job, Karen. Well, I got to tell you that um, Jerry Brandt drove me so crazy after the film was done. Um, you know, we had I had made a deal with, uh, with Jerry. You know, the first thing that I did before I shot a frame of film was um, I secured the rights to the publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to, to Jerry and his, uh, and Hayden Wayne, who's in the film, who was one of the creatures, one of the band members, uh, that toured with Joe Bryath. Um, 
And I went to them, you know, first thing, and I said, I'm, I want to do this documentary. Um, I don't know, you know, how much money I'm going to have for this. So here's the deal I want to set with you guys. Um, and I also want to lock up the rights to the songs for three years that you can't do anything else with them in terms of giving the rights to anybody else to do a documentary. I figured it, within three years, if I hadn't gotten at least started, then I wasn't going to do it or it wasn't going to happen and they could do it. And they, you know, they agreed. And, um, you know, and actually I, I pretty much like had, uh, I, I actually started production like within a year and two months of contacting them. Um, so, you know, it, it, it worked out. Um, but anyway, um, you know, it's, it's all deferred money. Um, because if the movie doesn't come out, you don't have to pay them. You know, I, I mean, you're not actually using the music. But um, when the film was done, Jerry came to me through Hayden and said, I'll waive the money if, uh, if you let me take charge of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, no, no. And, you know, and Jerry, you know, kept thinking of himself as this big mocker, you know, and, you know, and I knew from from just being with him in Miami Beach in his tiny tiny apartment that you know he he had no juice you know he he didn't and and that's not to that's not to to denigrate him i mean the guy did a ton of stuff during right. his career yeah he, you know, he did mean, he did at one point but he was yeah. he he was yeah. he's faded he faded many 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 years since he had done anything and, and he kept driving me crazy and he would have people contact me on his behalf, trying to wrest the control of the movie from me, even though he didn't have a leg to stand on. Right. And I was like, no, 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 I'll pay you. Don't worry about it. You know, when it's time for me to pay the money, you'll get it. You know, it's, you know, as soon as we have a deal for the movie, that's when I have to pay the money and you'll get it. Um, and he got it. Um, you know, uh, so, but, you know, he was, uh, he was a, a huckster, you know, right to the end, you know, we, we brought him into a film festival and he pretty much, you know, took charge, uh, and, uh, you know, charmed everybody, um, which was great. It was nice. And, and it was, it was good for him to have that, you know, one thing I, I will say, you know, that, that I, that I, when I, when I was listening to, to your episode, was um, you guys were saying, and I, I don't, you know, take offense to this at all, but I just wanted to clarify something. Um, I, I don't know if if it was that you were saying that I was trying to portray Jerry as a villain. Um, I wasn't. No, I, I actually. Oh, I, I didn't. I didn't. I'm sorry. I didn't think you were. I I thought that the. I actually thought you did a good. You did a very good job of it being ambiguous. It, it felt like you weren't inserting your opinion it seemed like the people around him that were giving yeah. the interviews were blaming yeah. Jerry. And it yeah. felt like it sounded like Joe Bryath blamed Jerry to the end. What, what I got from the interview was I, I think first off, Jerry's very upfront. He, he says he's a huckster. He, he yeah. said he wanted to be famous. He said he, he wanted his name up in, up in the billboards with him. So he, he admits all that up front. But I do think that he had to have believed in the music. He he had to have he had to have seen something in it that that made him want to do all that. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel, I think Jerry, I think Jerry just saw a trend. Um, you know, when I was doing my research and when I was interviewing people, you know, a lot of um, people would ask me questions about Jerry who, you know, they hadn't spoken to or didn't have much contact. The thing about, you know, you talked about Joe Bryath having all of these different musical periods, um, but it went further than that. Um, you know, he, he had a different persona with each one of the, the musical periods, but it was almost like he was, he, he was reborn because he would be with this cast of characters, friends, you know, uh, coworkers, what have you. And then when that particular thing failed, he would drop everybody, reinvent himself and surround himself with a whole new cast of characters. So that, I mean, I interviewed a lot of people for this movie, more than I think one would normally do for this sort of documentary. But it was because I would get somebody in the room and talk to them and they'd be like, well, I only knew him for this particular period and I can't talk to you about anything else. So it was almost like making five short movies because you had to round up a whole new cast of characters to talk about that particular oh, period. Yeah, that's crazy. Like you can't, you can't sit somebody down and have them go through his whole life with you. Yeah, it was uh, it was really bizarre. Um, and uh, I remember um, when I was researching the Cole Berlin period, um, I had only talked to people who knew him during hair or glam. And I talked to them about it and they all portrayed it as just this huge, sad failure. So I had cut together a sequence about Cole Berlin. And, um, and this is how bizarre the whole and, and serendipitous, the whole sort of experience of, of interviewing people and putting things together was, it, it was, I felt almost at times, and I don't believe in this kind of thing, but I felt almost at times that, uh, that I had the ghost of Joe Bryath sort of sitting on my shoulder and, and guiding me. Um, I was a heavy Facebook user back then because it was also a great way to find people mm -hmm. that you had no connection to. And one day, some guy started talking to me, like sent me an instant message. And I looked at his picture and I thought it was a friend of mine. I didn't even look at the name. I was busy. I was at work. So I started chatting with him, thinking it was a friend of mine, this guy, Tom. And then in the middle of it, I realized, I don't know who the fuck this is. <laughs> I was talking to him for, for, um, for almost an hour and I, I have no idea who this person is. So I was like, hi, who are you, by the way? And he was like, oh, we're, we're, we have a mutual friend and, and you make such funny comments on her page that I thought you would be a fun person to talk to. And I'm like, oh, okay. So we started chatting and I mentioned what I was doing. And he goes, oh, wow, I knew Joe Bryath. What? And I was like, what, how? He goes, I used to play uh, in the piano bars. I knew him when he was Cole Berlin. We used to play the same piano bars together. And I was like freaking out because the thing about the piano bars, that was early 80s. And let me tell you, you can't find anybody from that era. They're all dead. Right. They're all dead of AIDS. Right. 
they, I mean, it just wiped that entire community out, um, including Joe Bryath. Um, so I, you know, it was really hard for me to piece anything together like that. So, uh, you know, we talked and I sent him the, the, um, the working segment about Cole Berlin and he called me and he said, you have this all wrong. He was not a failure. He was actually really successful. He had a big following as Cole Berlin, and he was really starting to make his name. And, and if he hadn't gotten sick, he could have been in the Michael Feinstein uh, you know, level. He goes, and I'll come in and talk about him. And I'll also you know, introduce you to people who are still alive who were there. And had I not gotten him, you know, on a lark, I mean, yeah. you know, this is somebody who started talking to me because they thought I was kicky, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. Oh, that's so it, wild. It changed the whole, and it, but it also changed the trajectory of the film because before this, it was, he did this and he failed. And he did this and he failed. And then he did this and he failed. Oh, and then he died. <laughs> Yeah, and it's well, you know, it it was, but you know, to be able to honestly say that he had finally found a niche that that where people liked him and accepted him and and were interested in what he was doing, and only because of the scourge of AIDS did you know was he unable to do that? It it really it really changed the scope of the film. Um, you know, and, and I, and I found a lot of really weirdly serendipitous things like that. Um, you know, and when people found out that I was making this film because I had put the Facebook page up during, uh, during shooting, I had people coming out of the woodwork. I, so many Morrissey freaks were trying to get Morrissey in this film. Mm -hmm. And so I had a whole underground railroad network of Morrissey fans who were trying to like get me to Morrissey and I would get like texts or phone calls or emails he's going to be at the cat and fiddle in Hollywood you know tonight show up there at seven o'clock you know and me stupidly I did you know (laughs) (laughs) Um, but we actually did get to Morrissey and three times and three times he basically said no and stopped asking um so, you know, it, it, it was not to, to be, that's, but I'm sorry, I totally got off the topic about Jerry Brown. No, that's okay. That's, that's, um, yeah. that's surprising to me that, that he's such a champion of him and, um, but wouldn't be interested in, but it's also probably, you still have the footage of Morrissey talking about him right in the film. Um, no, actually, I don't have any. Where did I? I saw. Oh, maybe it was a separate thing on YouTube that I watched. Where it was just Morrissey talking about Joe Bryan. I thought you. Okay, that's. I saw something separate on YouTube. Yeah. No, I think that might have been when Morrissey covered Morning Star mm-hmm. for his covers album. Oh yes, that's what it was. I saw him talking yeah. about him on YouTube. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I was terrified when I started that I wasn't going to have enough story. That I wasn't going to have enough uh, archival footage. And so I was trying to run around and and contact all of these musicians, whether they were fans or not, if they were openly gay musicians, because um, I was going to try and create this narrative, you know, comparing and contrasting, you know, openly gay musicians today to Joe Bryath. 
But the more that I worked and the more that I was able to, you know, dig into the story, I found that I didn't need it. There was enough story there for for a, a full movie and I and, didn't need to pad it. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I, and I think I read this in an interview, uh, the reason because you thought obviously there is such limited footage of Joe Bryant, et cetera, um, your animation segments. <laughs> <laughs> which are, I think I are, love, which are great. And usually, you know, an anime, an animation segment is just, it, it can be, you know, I, I, I think of like Pink Floyd and, and uh, you know, the wall and, you know, Monty Python, you know, those say, and they're silly sort of interludes one, one to get to another, but yours had like a definite degree of exposition in them. Like, I felt like you sort of told the story through some of those. What was that? Did, did you have, did you know someone who did that or did you have to seek, someone out uh to to do those uh, animation segments no i had to seek somebody out i didn't and in fact i had decided i i my idea for the film was really to sort of present it in five different segments and i wanted to have them all stylized differently i was i was thinking i might have a lot more narration than i did and i was going to hire five different uh, actors to do narration, you know, for each period. And I sought out um, a different animator and I chose a different style for each piece of animation because I wanted that to reflect the different personas of Joe Bryath. Mm. Um, and, uh, and it was difficult because I'm not an animator, so I don't know how to tell somebody what to do um, I only know how to tell, I only know how to write the sequence and say, this is how I want it to, you know, this is, this is what I want it to say, you know, here, here's the script for it. And this is sort of the style that I want um, and, you know, go to it um, and hope that they knew what they were doing. Um, you know, and, and I know we had one animator who we had some issues with. He was, he was really late, uh, with his work and we wound up having to chop it up and, and, but it worked out fine. Um, and, uh, so I, and there was one guy that I had been after for like over a year. Cause I loved his style. The guy who did the Cole Berlin animation, that was the construction paper cutout. Um, I want that so badly. And he said no to me so many times. Um, and I, I finally basically said he was trying to get his own, uh, construction paper feature film done. And oh, I was wow. like, well, I will, he's like, it's not the money. I just, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then he started a Kickstarter for this. And I'm like, I'll settle your Kickstarter if you do this for me. Oh, wow. Because that's how badly oh, I wow. wanted it. Um, and, uh, and so he finally agreed and it's my favorite, one of my favorites of, of the thing. Um, but you know, I, I, and yeah, I did the animation because I thought there wouldn't be enough footage. Um, and, and for the most part, I think the animation works. There's one sequence where I'm like, oh God. And the only reason I have it in there is because I paid so much money for it. <laughs> I was like, I'm not letting this go on the cutting room floor. But in hindsight, I wish I would have left it off because it, I, I feel that it's, um, it, it, it's sort of redundant and, and kind of boring. I mean, it's not that long, but you know, it's the, it's the Times Square stuff. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's, I feel it's just kind of overkill. Yeah. Uh, but, and, uh, and one of the, I, I think one of the things that just boggled our, our minds so much and you just can't believe it. And again, hindsight, but, uh, if we, if we talk about his family a little bit, you know, the story was that his 
a big, I think a big part of the reason why so much isn't out there is that his father went in and paid a couple of guys just to go in and destroy everything. Yeah. And and you're just, just what was lost in that fire, you know, of, you know, what, what could have been. And, you know, it's it's so, it's so frustrating. Did you, I I know you obviously talked to, I I guess it was his half brother, right. That, that was throughout the, um, did you talk to a number of other people? And I, I should say, by the way, he grew up in, Upper Marion, or at least partially grew up in Upper Marion, which is the next town over from where I grew up. I grew up. I remember hearing that. Yeah. 10 minutes from there. Yeah. And um, did, did you talk to a lot of family members and did they, I, I think sometimes it's so, so strange that, you know, sometimes, especially for his trajectory, like, did, do you think they got the gravity of like how big he was or could have been or how much of a artist he, he was, or did, did they not seem to understand that? I, you know, there aren't really a lot of family members left. Um, you know, I'm assuming his, his father wasn't, isn't around anymore. No, no, his parents are dead. And uh, yeah. I, I don't remember when his dad died, uh, before his mother, I believe. Um, the, uh, his mom died in like the early aughts, I want to say like 2002, 2003. Um, of the full brothers, uh, one is dead. Um, and the other one just, you know, didn't want to, didn't want to talk. Um, I tried getting in touch with his stepmother, who was the woman who actually, uh, was his first piano teacher. Um, Uh after, after his mother left his father and was, you know, uh, checking up with, uh, with the guy that she eventually married and had Willie with, um, his father uh, remarried and wound up remarrying um, the woman who was uh, teaching Joe Bryant piano. Really? So, uh, and she was still alive at the time. And I got in contact with her son because she had been married before and had two kids. So they had, so Joe Bryant had a stepbrother and a stepsister and the stepbrother like jerked me around for months. And, uh, and I finally realized I was never getting any access to his mom and I just, I just gave up. Um, so yeah, there wasn't really a lot. I, I did actually hear from Joe Bryant's nieces after the film uh, came out and they, they sent me a really lovely email saying that they got to see the movie and how much they liked it and how great it was to finally get to know who their uncle was. Oh, that's great. Uh, so I was really touched by that and 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 that made me really happy. But, you know, Willie, I think, probably had the most contact with Joe Bryath, um, you know, once he became Joe Bryath. Um, and I was also told some stories about the family dynamic from other people, not from Willie that I don't want to talk about mm-hmm. because I don't, I haven't vetted them. Right. And I, I, I don't want to start any rumors and I don't want to, you know, put anything out there that I can't for sure say um, is anything other than a story. But, you know, uh, I mean, there are other things that I was told that I'm, I'm, that didn't make the film that I'm happy to talk about because I do know that they were true. Um, but for some strange reason, people wouldn't talk about them on camera. Um, That's frustrating. I was reading, yeah. I was reading an interview with you and, and you said the minute the camera stopped rolling, they would loosen up and start telling you everything. Yeah. Which, and I was like, I don't want to hear it because if you're going to tell me off camera, it's gospel. Right. I, I also know? got a little fresh. I got a little frustrated for you. I, I was reading some of the reviews last night. Like I read the New York times review 
Yeah. And the review, none of the reviews were scathing, but it, it seemed like the biggest complaint in the reviews, in some of the reviews, was the lack of footage. And yeah. I'm like, well, did you did you watch through to the end where they said that almost everything was destroyed? Like you you found like you probably dug up every piece of footage that even exists. And it must have been uh, an exhaustive search looking for it. And then just to have, you know, to have a reviewer be like, well, there wasn't enough footage for my liking. And it's yeah, like, yeah, that, but there's none. Yeah. <laughs> he found everything there is. Yeah, that that was that was a complaint. I don't I don't really I mean, you know, the film got really good reviews pretty much, but there were some some not good reviews. We actually got two reviews in the New York Times. The first one was when we played at a film festival and it got a really good review. So I just expected that they would reprint it when it got, you know, released theatrically. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, and then this 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 third stringer who, um, you know, <laughs> and he was, because Stephen Holden was the guy who reviewed it the first time. And, you know, and Stephen's been with the New York Times for, for decades and actually reviewed Joe Bryath um, playing at the bottom line in the New York Times in the 70s. Oh, wow. wow. So he knew who Joe Bryath was, you know, and he, you know, so to, to get, it's so for him to review the film, I, I was, I was like blown away. Um, but, um, you know, I think what it is these days is that, you know, and a lot of these reviews were on the film festival circuit, too, is, you know, you've got these you've got these bloggers who, um, you know, they will they say, oh, well, we'll you know, I'll review your films at the film festival and the film festival is like, great, we get free press and we'll send you a screener or we'll, we'll you know, we'll send it to you online. And, you know, for the most part, they're busy tweeting and bullshitting around on the computer while they have one eye on the film. Yeah. And that's, you know, because, and the reason I say that is because they would say stuff like, well, I didn't see blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, did you watch the movie? Because it's in there. Right. You know, and that's the thing. It's like, I don't care if you don't like the movie um, because as I've said, you know, everybody's not going to like everything. Um, but, you know, at least prove to me that you've got a reason for for not liking it and not and it's not that you weren't paying attention. So you didn't get what was, you know, obviously in there. Um, but, yeah, it, it is frustrating on um, that. And the Morrissey comment were the two things that drove me up the wall. It's like, why didn't he have Morrissey? In, in <laughs> like the it movie? didn't occur like, to you. Oh, my God, you're right. It never occurred to me to I, ask. I, you know? I, the, my, I get the same thing with my mom all the time. She's like, why, why don't you just get an agent? Yeah. I'm like, oh, an agent. Why didn't I think of that? Like I'm sitting around like hanging up the phone. Pass, pass, pass. Chip, Chip, have you have you thought about going on the Tonight Show? <laughs> yeah, I've thought about it. I, I have. I've I've thought about it a couple of times. Right. My mother's my mother's line was, are they paying you? No, mom, yeah. I'm working for a fresh hot apple pie, you know. <laughs> I would I would up and up until my dad passed away, I would still get that every time I told him, you know, yeah. I was like, oh, I was working. Look, did they pay you? I'm like, yeah, I've been yeah. doing it 10 years, dad. They yeah. they pay me now. Yeah. It, <laughs> I, well, my mom was was the master of the the uh, the, the praise with uh, with with slight, slight cynicism. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was it was always uh, I, I would always like not want to tell her stuff. And she didn't mean anything bad by it. But it was just it was just the mother thing. You know, 
you, you know what else struck me? I, I was actually watching the movie again this morning. And oh, wow. you, you know what struck me about it? What? If usually you have these artists where you're like, oh, if they came out today, they would never mm-hmm. be big. Like if the Stones or Bowie or whoever came out today, especially in rock music, they would never be big. I was watching Joe Bryaf and I was like, I actually think he'd be big today. Like, as crazy as it sounds, he could have gone on American Idol or America's Got Talent and his um, accent, uh, his quirkiness and yeah. his, you know, especially being gay and how accepted and champion that is right now. I, I think he's one of those rare cases where he'd be much bigger today. Like the world just wasn't ready for him. Oh, I definitely think the world wasn't ready for him. Um, and... I, you know, the thing is, is that I'm not sure how much more successful he would have been because if you really listen to the music, as wonderful as it is, it's it's not commercial. Um, and and it, it was never going to be uh, a hit. It was never going to be on the charts. Um, it, it But... I think that with the internet and being able to discover things the way that people are able mm-hmm. to discover things, um, you know, he would have definitely had uh, a good following, um, you know, uh, c- certainly better than he had uh, back in the seventies. But I mean, the music industry has changed so much, you know, it's, 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 it's in such free fall that I, I, I don't know what constitutes a success anymore. And, 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 I, and I think that's definitely true. And I think it's also the, the fact that it, it has changed so much and you, you know, what he was doing, like you said, and like, I, I, I agree that they, they might not be these three minute pop songs that are going to you know top the chart, obviously. Uh, but like he had such talent that, like you said, what constitutes success? Like, I don't necessarily see him as a pop star, although I think today he would have had much more success than he would have had in the early 70s. But like, it w- I think it would have been a behind the scenes situation where he'd be a composer. He'd be scoring films and or writing musicals. And yeah. Ken and I kept talking about how, just that footage of him in the studio. Yes. Or that- I think it was like with Pigeon and that, or maybe at the beginning of that, when with was- Richard Gere, when mm-hmm. Richard Gere was in there with him. And which is yeah. mind blowing. But just him- just running around the studio like that was his element and like that you know composing these songs i think that's where he would have found a success rather than because i I, i'm not an expert on on glam especially compared to probably either one of you but his music didn't seem like that to me it just seemed like jerry brandt i don't think in a in a uh a, a dastardly way but he he was like glam's the big thing here's a really talented guy let's fit this square peg in this round hole and right. he's going to be glam now. And it's like, well, uh, if we didn't do that, that could have, you know, led to something so much more. Oh, absolutely. I, I definitely think, you know, Jerry, I, one of the things I had started to say before, but of course I got off on one of my million tangents. Um, <laughs> and you guys have been great following me That's- around the, the Candyland path as I stumble around. <laughs> it's perfect. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people were like, well, you know, were Jerry and Joe Bryant lovers? You know, was, was Jerry secretly gay or, or was he bisexual? 
And, uh, you know, and I kind of wondered that, um, you know, when I, because if you read some of the interviews that Jerry gave, I mean, he absolutely, you know, gave that impression that they had, you know, hooked up or, or, or what have you. Um, but, um, you know, in talking to Jerry, I, he absolutely, uh, you know, did not have any sort of, of, of an affair with Joe Bryaf, nor do I think he was romantically or sexually besotted with him, I think Jerry just saw a trend. He thought that gay was going to be the next big thing because of Bowie sort of, you know, playing right. around with bisexuality. Um, and one of the big things that I wanted answered as a gay man was why, you know, four years post Stonewall, did the gay community, especially in New York, not be like beside themselves in excitement about this unapologetic, you know, uh, effeminate gay man, you know, coming out and saying, I'm the true fairy of rock and roll. I didn't understand it. I wanted to know. And I was really shocked to find out just how um, freaked out by that image uh, the uh, the majority of gay men were then that they were into this sort of Marlboro man image and this hyper masculine uh, image um, and Joe Bryant really turned them off um, and that's why and so that's why another reason why I say Jerry wasn't gay because if Jerry was gay he would have known that at that time putting that image out was the death knell right mm -hmm. um you know he was just a straight man who thought that you know he was trying to sort of you know when i was younger i used to say that a trend you knew a trend was over when you would see a mcdonald's commercial uh using it like you knew break dancing was over when you started seeing it in McDonald's commercials. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so I think I, I think that you know that particular thing was over. You know when when Jerry when a straight man decided he was going to exploit it. And by the way, uh, Ronald McDonald is actually doing our podcast next week. So uh, <laughs> I think you can tell where our where our we're, 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 man, we're, I will definitely be tuning in. We're doing the making of the McDLT. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and here's I, I and I could have heard this wrong, or I, I thought this was really interesting. Th looking at him as as performer, obviously he was a brilliant performer, and I. But I think if you looked, I think it was Midnight Special was the, the and just some of that production, which and again I love the idea of the Empire State Building, King Kong turn you know turning into uh, why am I forgetting her name. Um, Marlena, Marlena Dietrich. So like, yeah. I mean, that just is brilliant in concept right there. But then you see some of the, the practical effects that they use, like a midnight special, whatever. And you're like, it just, to me, it almost seemed, I think I said this in the last podcast, but like almost like spinal tap, like level of like, oh, this in concept, it, it's great, but it just wasn't working out. And then obviously there was because of the homophobia and of people not knowing how to take them, like there were some dangerous nights on the road and, you know, people, people but then it seemed like it was all over. I, th I think basically the record company had sort of walked away, but then they did, I think it was in Tuscaloosa, Tuscaloosa. Alabama it, at the college. And it, the, you had mentioned that it was this huge success with the college kids. Do you know, do you know any more about that night or were there those nights where they were on the road that like 
that like do you know what struck a chord with people and what really resonated like what form did he come in that night that 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 worked so well um i i did talk to uh one of the guys who was in charge of the concert series that played in tuscaloosa unfortunately i didn't get a chance to interview him on camera but we talked on the phone. I, I forget where he lived, but I just didn't have a chance to get there. Um, and he was great. I mean, uh, you know, their whole thing was, you know, they were huge music freaks and um, and they wanted to present this varied um, uh, lineup of artists. So, I mean, like they had everybody from Elvis Presley to Elton John to, you know, country artists. And they just had, he said that, that you know, within this somewhat, you know, I guess, uh, conservative state was this little pocket. And, you know, in this university where they had a really uh, liberal and open-minded and curious, you know, group of, of students. And they, you know, they embraced everything. But uh, no, Joe Bryath did not come out with uh, with the glam uh, persona and he didn't have the fishbowl on his head. You know, they just came out and they just played good rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they really they put on a good show and they really just captivated the audience. And uh, they were, you know, they were thrilled uh, that that they were able to to. Uh, you know, to make that kind of impression, but they were also really starting to get very tight as a band and they had been playing together, you know, for a few months and, and things were only getting better. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that the plug got pulled um, and there was just no more money to, to tour them. Yeah, um, it was, it's, it, that's where we, when, when you get to the Tuscaloosa scene in the film, I was like, oh, good, a happy ending. Like, this is good. <laughs> and then, but then I hit pause and I saw there was like 40 more minutes or something. And I was like, oh, wait, maybe not. <laughs> but it kept, it kept leading. I would be, and then, and then when the Cole Berlin, the Cole Berlin phase and, and he starts building up an audience and he's, and I was like, oh, good, a happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. nope, that evades. And by, and by the way, I could have watched 90 minutes of him in his apartment at the Chelsea Hotel. That was the coolest that footage is the ever. craziest. It was it was unreal. As as a as a big Wes Anderson fan, I was like, oh, this is exactly what he was shooting for. Probably. I mean, this is an unreal. Yeah, it was gorgeous. You know, I, I and it, it's heartbreaking to me that that is no longer there. I um, when I first started doing research, the first thing I did in Christmas of 2007 was. I booked a room at the Chelsea. You could still, you know, it, it, they still had the tenants there, but they were starting to uh, to evict people and they were starting to figure things out. Stanley Bard, who had been the longtime manager there and had been such a friend to so many artists, including Joe Bryant. I mean, he would, he would let rent slide for months and months and months. You know, I mean, his whole thing was, you know, if, if, if you're an artist, you know, I want to, I, I, let me see what I can do because, mm. you know, it, it, it's hard enough to, to, to be an artist in the world without wondering where you're going to live. 
Um, so I booked a room at the Chelsea and my goal was to get upstairs and, and see, uh, and see the, the, the rooftop apartment. And uh, the door was totally locked. There was a fire, it was a fire door, but it was totally locked. Nobody was living up there. And there really was only one apartment that was just stationed on the roof. And that was uh, Joe Bryant's penthouse. Other people had access to the roof, but they were top floor apartments that had build ups, I guess, mm -hmm. that, you know, you like, uh, I guess, like duplexes where you would go up a, a, you know, like a winding staircase and you could go outside. Like a, like a pilot house um, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I couldn't get up there at first, but then I, you know, I, I noticed that like no one would ever go up there. So I actually jimmied the lock and I broke the door. Um, and I was like, well, you know what? Fuck it. If I get caught, I get caught, but right. I, I have to see yeah. this. Um, and I went up there and it was like the secret garden up there. It was so gorgeous. It was so amazing. Um, and I just, I absolutely fell in love with it and, and just spent like an hour up there, like hanging out. Um, and, uh, and then when I went back a couple of years later, everything had been torn out. Yeah, you know, um, they ripped it out. I, I see you guys like looking like this. Are, are we? Wrapping no, no, up? no, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 no. I was um no, I was I was just going to say I, I wouldn't have left once I got in that apartment was so cool. <laughs> yeah. I just would have I just would have been Uber eating every single meal yeah. and been like, this is where I live now. And good luck yeah, getting me out. Yeah, it was amazing. And now during that era and that and that's the thing. And I touched on this at the beginning, but um, just hearing the very brief music from Sunday brunch. I was like, this, this was, I mean, first of all, it's it literally got everything that everybody loves today. I mean, it sounds like great music, Broadway hit about cannibalism, about murder, about <laughs> like, like secretly, you know, or, you know, like surreptitiously in there. Uh, do you know how much of that musical he had composed at that point or written like book written? Yeah. Um, when I went to interview Willie, Willie has the script for it. Um, so there's a full script. There's a full script for it. There's also a full script um, for Popstar. There's there are two because they they rewrote them and that I I went to the library and uh, and found it at the New York Public Library in the public theaters archives um, because that's what I I needed to write the liner notes and I needed to know what the scripts were. So I went and I and I read both of them and I, I took you know notes so that I could tell the story in the liner notes. But uh, yeah, there is a script. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to read it because we were interviewing Willie. Willie was like, here, you know, you can read it on breaks. And I just never had any breaks. Mm -hmm. um, and apparently there is, a, there is another demo of, of, I can't remember how many songs. Um, and I'm going to find out uh, because I know who has the demo. Um, so I, I can't say that there, there there's a full score, but there are many other songs besides just Sunday Brunch that that there are demo recordings of. Um, you know, I would love to see one of these things done. At, you know, at, at at some point, is there um, anybody who would be the person to do? Like, I don't know if you're in a position to do that. I mean, it's not like you own the. Is it Willie, or is there somebody else who controls his legacy, or or that would that that would see that to fruition? Well, I ha I actually have uh, the copyrights on the um, on the pop star music. 
Oh, okay. Oh. I, I, but the funny thing is, is I don't have the copyrights on the on the script because um, I, I believe that that I, I don't know. I actually don't know who controls that. I'm going to assume that in terms of the Sunday brunch stuff, it probably resides uh, with the family with Willie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I would love to to you know to see if there's anything there. I definitely think there's something there for Popstar. I, I I think the book would have to be rewritten because the the both books are are just kind of a shambles. Um, but the music's so great, um, you know, and and I can't wait for you guys to hear it because I think you guys are gonna really love it. Um, but uh, you know, even just a reading to see if there's any interest, I don't know, you know. Um, uh, I, I would love to do more on 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 Joe Bryaf, but it's such a, you know, it's 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 a hard thing to get going because it's a period piece, so it's expensive. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm assuming you made millions and millions from this documentary, yeah. right? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, you know, it it's it's funny because when when I started the film on the film festival circuit, we were in direct competition with Searching for Sugar Man. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wow. also and, a great one. Um, you know, and the thing about Searching for Sugar Man is that Rodriguez is still alive. So when you have two movies that are about these forgotten you know, musicians that are being rediscovered, who do you want to book? Well, yeah, you want the one book you the can guy trot out. You know, <laughs> nobody <laughs> wants to see me come and talk. They want to see the, you know, I mean, and, and, I, and, and I say that with no bitterness. Right. I totally yeah, get of it. course. Right. Um, and so, you know, it was it was difficult to compete with with that in terms of, of attention. Um, but um, I, I didn't know what was going to happen with this. Uh, so, you know, the fact that the fact that the music got back in print, that's amazing. Uh, that you know, is... All the music is is I, I, I couldn't have asked for anything more. So I, I, you know, as a, to, to get, you know, to go full circle for what we said in the beginning, I, I'm, that to me was, was, was plenty. Um, I was really happy. I, I uh, loved my, and I know this was touched on in the documentary, but I, I think it had to have been a deliberate choice of Joe Bryant to open the album with Take Me, I'm Yours. This, <laughs> this, this gay bondage S&M song and just... There's not a more perfect, fully formed announcement of this is who I am. That's the song that jumped out at me. That's the song that I go back to the most. That's that's the one that I play when when I'm when I'm looking to hear something. Yeah. And um, just the 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 zero fucks given of mm-hmm. of opening the album with that and 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 the artwork by the way the artwork that is one of the the most amazing album covers i ever saw when i was looking at it on my phone i didn't under you know i didn't really get what i was looking at wasn't until i watched your movie when you unfolded the album cover and and you see the the full picture and i was like i i just don't understand how I, I mean, I guess I do. It's it's when when something's pushed down your throat, your natural reaction is is, is to push back. But oh, yeah. I, I just I don't understand how how more people didn't didn't get it. 
Yeah, I mean, I love that 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 that's what they were going to do on on the midnight special, and they had to to quickly you know sub in another song, yeah, uh, which was was pretty great. But I remember getting that that footage or seeing that footage um, and being so excited about it because I had tried really hard to clear it. With I mean, I cleared everything, um, but there were you know a few things that I just I couldn't find out who the source was. And my thing was, well, I'll use it. And if somebody contacts me, this is what, you know, I'll offer them what I'm offering everybody else. Um, but I mean, there weren't too many instances of that, but I tried, you know, to clear that footage with Bert Sugarman's office several times and they just didn't engage me. I mean, like I never even got a response, you know, I have all the the faxes that I sent and, and, and the emails and such. Um, and, uh, you know, and I talked to a fair use lawyer and they were like, you're, you're fine. You're covered. Don't yeah. worry about it. Please use it. But I remember the first time I saw that footage, especially the, the second number where he comes out with the helmet. And when he releases it, just this gasp of awe. I mean, I know that, you know, people are like, oh, it's silly. And you see the, the fingerprints and everything, but you're just not expecting it, you know, <laughs> and, and it's, it's such a delight. And to sit in the audience with, you know, with people watching the movie, um, they had the same reaction, you know, and it was because the footage, you know, hadn't really been seen to death at that point on, on YouTube. So uh, it, it was so much fun to to experience that again, you know, through an audience. Um, but, uh, you know, and there are other stories that we that that I had that I just wasn't able to really, you know, illustrate because I didn't have footage, one of which was and I don't know if you guys, you know, know the story or read about it, that, you um, Joe Bryeth was one of the top three finalists to play the Chris Sarandon role in Dog Day Afternoon. I, I had read. I yeah, just saw that in an interview incredible. you did today. I just saw that this morning. Yeah, um, I, I had interviewed uh, Dennis Christopher about it. And actually, um, if you on the DVD, um, I have a lot of um, of extras in terms of interviews for things that 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 didn't make the final cut. And one of those is Dennis Christopher talking at length about that because Dennis Christopher was the third actor. It was Chris Sarandon, Joe Bryeth, and Dennis Christopher. And Dennis Christopher talks about how they each had a different approach to the character, um, but that Joe Bryeth, you know, got that close to getting the role that, you know, they, they, they auditioned so many different people and, uh, you know, he made it that far, um, is pretty impressive, yeah. you know, for somebody who had never acted before. And I went through, I drove people at Warner brothers crazy trying to find out if there were any, if there was any archival footage of it, but there just wasn't, uh, which is a real shame because that would have been really amazing. What do you have any other? You said you had some good Jerry Brandt stories that didn't make the cut. Oh gosh. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he's been our favorite character so far from any of the all of the stories from all of the, the podcasts that we did, the topics we've done so far. He sticks out as he's definitely a uh uh he's he's somebody you don't forget uh very, very easily. Yeah. Uh Gosh, Jerry, you know, Jerry told me some story about how he was laundering money. <laughs> it didn't have anything to do with Joe Bryant. It had to do with 
I think with the Erotic Circus, which was the second club that he opened. And I'm sorry, I should have gone back and really like looked at this because it was so incredible. And he starts telling me this story about how he had been indicted for it. And he was in court. And I was like, Jerry, are, are you sure you want to tell me this story before we go any further? Because I'm going to use it if there's, you know, if, if there's any need for it. I'm like, don't tell me something that's going to incriminate you. I'm just letting you know that right now. I, you know, I, I, I don't, because I, knowing that it wasn't about Joe Bryant, I kind of had a feeling I wasn't going to use it. If it had been about Joe Bryant, I would have kept my mouth shut. Right. Just been like, come on, <laughs> keep going. Um, uh, but, um, you know, and he's like, now nah, the statute of limitations are over. Don't worry about it. I'm clear, you know, and, and he would, and he told me the story about how um, he would have his secretary sign all of these documents, sign his name on all of these documents. Um, and so, you know, he had basically had done the deed. He had, you know, committed the crime but because his secretary had signed the documents, he knew he was in the clear. So he showed up at court and he was, you know, this big show off. And I mean, you know, I think Jerry would have loved to have been in the mob. Yeah. I, I think that that was a secret fantasy of Jerry's. I think, you know, I think Jerry probably, you know, watched, uh, watched the, the Sopranos, um, you know, wearing a butt plug or something. I think it's just, <laughs> I taught these guys everything they know, you know. Um, but um, apparently, you know, Jerry had built uh, certain investors out of a hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the elect for the erotic circus, and when they came back to get the money, you know, his whole thing was, "I never signed the papers." You know, and when they got him on the stand, they asked him if it was his signature and he was able to, you know, say without uh, without a doubt, I, that's not my signature and was able to prove it. So he got to walk scot free. I mean, this is him telling the story. You know, I, I, I kind of felt like everything that Jerry told me, I didn't necessarily think that he was lying, but he um there was always, you know, it was always in the Jerry universe. One one case in point was um, when when I was interviewing Jerry, um, Jerry insisted insisted that it was David Geffen who had signed Joe Bryath to Electra. Mm -hmm. Now, first person I ever interviewed was Jack Holtzman from Electra. And um, and it was, and that's how I actually got to start the documentary because I was trying to find out if there were enough people to interview, and I had gotten in touch with Jack, who was a nice guy but a real curmudgeon, and um, I was like, you know, if you're interested in doing an interview, and he was like, I don't think I have enough to say about him, and I'm like, you know what? Even if you can just clear up a couple of things, if I'm in the room with you for ten minutes and you can answer three questions for me, it will have been worth my time. And he goes, all right, we'll do it on this date and at this time. And I'm like, I don't even have a crew. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because it was like in five days. Yeah. So, you know, in five days, I found a DP and, and, and put things together. And I was like, well, I guess we're in production. Um, and Jack, you know, basically told the story about how he had signed Jerry as, I'm sorry, had signed Joe Bryath 
as a favor to Jerry for bringing him Carly Simon. And Jack was actually able to produce the contract oh, and wow. show it to me and show that his brother who was working for the company, you know, like was like a, a level under Jack had been the person who had signed the, the contract. So I knew this to be true. So Jerry is telling me the story about how he and David Geffen had gone to see Carol King uh, in Central Park do a concert. And they had been smoking a joint and they had been talking, they had been having stories apparently, um, and I'm not gonna get too graphic about this and I, because it was just really gross. Um, the story that, that Jerry told me about how David Geffen had fucked um, Jerry's wife, Janet Margle, and this actress. Um, and it just had told me some terrible, you know, graphic sex stories. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, thanks. I, we, you know. um, and, and you have to imagine you've got, we're in this apartment that is so small. I had three people, myself, the cameraman, and, and an assistant um, in this apartment that was so small that one of them had to stand in the kitchen during the interview because we couldn't fit three people in the, in, in the apartment. Um, while we're interviewing Jerry and he's telling us, you know, all these ridiculous, you know, graphic sex stories. And he's, you know, he's basically doing Al Pacino in Scent of a Woman. <laughs> you know, I'm serious. And, and when he sees that, you know, that we've laughed at it once, he doesn't stop it. You like know? like and, any good comedian. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's just, it's like, Wah! you know, and, and, and finally I had to like, Jerry, we get it. Thanks. You know? Um, and uh, anyway, so he said, you know, we smoked a joint. I, I pitched Joe Bryant to him. I took him back up to uh, my apartment and I played Joe Bryant for him. And uh, on a deal, he said that he would sign Joe Bryant. And I kept saying, Jerry, you're wrong. I've seen the contract. I've, I've seen it. And he's like, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to let you talk. So for many months after that, I kept trying to get in touch with David Geffen. And I sent uh, email after email after email to, the, to his assistant wanting to interview him. One day I'm in my office and I get a call. And it's like, uh, David Geffen for Kieran Turner. And I'm like, duh. Oh, wow. <laughs> and David goes, I never do interviews. He goes, I, 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 I never, I never go on camera. I did it once for this one documentary because it was Joni Mitchell, you know, and, and I love Joni, but I hate being on camera. So what do you want? And so I was <laughs> like, okay. I was like, can you corroborate this for me? And I told him the story and he goes, yeah, yeah, I signed him. And I said, okay, he goes, what do you want me to do? And I go, well, if I, will you write a letter corroborating that? And he told me the whole story. He told me the same story that Jerry told me. And, you know, you don't say to David Geffen, you're wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> you say, okay, thank you, Mr. Geffen. Um, and I appreciate that. And David Geffen wrote me a letter that he signed that I still have that says, you know, I signed Joe Bryant, blah, blah, blah. But I just thought it, and I wanted, I wish that I could have found an interesting way to document on camera that you've got these two big executives who were responsible for, 
you know, the two of the biggest labels or, you know, I mean, they were right. the same label, but they wound up, you know, it was Electra and Asylum that right. merged into Electra Asylum. But I mean, those guys had everybody, you know, the Doors, the Eagles, Joni Mitchell. I mean, it was, it was an amazing, they were huge. you know, both of whom could have given two fucks about Joe Bryath. And in fact, Jack Holtzman had gone on record as saying the only two mistakes I ever made in my career you know, we're signing Joe Bryath and signing some other band that he told me about. And I can't remember the name of him, but I tried to find evidence of them. And there's not even any evidence of them on, <laughs> on online. I can't even find their music. Um, but now you've got these two guys who, you know, uh, both have disparaged Joe Bryath um, now fighting over credit. Taking as credit. Who signed him. I mean, that is mind-blowing. <laughs> The, the egos on the yeah, on people. It, it, it's, it's, it's hilarious. Oh, there's, there's, there's interest in this 40 years later. Then let me, let me take all the credit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But uh, yeah, if I could have found a way to, to, to show that on camera, I, I would have, but it, I just couldn't, you know, there just wasn't enough the way that the story had been told. And I only had David's uh, letter and, you know, and unfortunately I couldn't, you know, I couldn't record the conversation, which would have been great. But, uh, you know, I just had no warning. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, and Jerry just, Jerry was so, Jerry so badly wanted to make a comeback. Yeah. You know, in, yeah. in his later years. And you can see that on, on, on camera. And, um, you know, did he really miss Joe Bryath? I, I don't think so. I think, you know, the, I think the tears were crocodile tears. But I also think that he was sincere in what he did. I think that he, you know, he put a lot of his own money into it. And I do think, I did ask him what happened to that money because, you know, he did get money from David Geffen. Right. Uh, at the end, you know, David, so he saw, like you know, David said- $50,000 or something. Yeah, if you don't ask me for any more money, and David corroborated this too, um, if you know, if you leave me alone, I'll give you you know x amount of money, and that money wound up going into helping start the erotic circus, and that's why Joe Bryant said that, yeah, and that's why Joe Bryant felt cheated, and my whole thing was, well, you know what, the guy was you know putting a lot of money into into this. I mean, you know. Obviously, Electra only gave him a certain amount of money for a promotional budget. So where was this other money coming from? You know, my guess is he probably built uh, another couple of investors out of another $100,000 that didn't make it to court. Right. You know, um, but, you know, does he want to recoup some of that money? Uh, sure. You know, he, he, you know, I think he was well within his rights to do that. And what's funny is I remember, you know, when I was listening to your episode, you guys were crowing about the 50-50 thing. You are the only people who, including myself, that thought that that was a good deal. That's a shitty deal. <laughs> <laughs> no manager should be getting 50% of, of, of their artists. No, you know, of course not. But, you know, yeah. as as an unproven artist who I mean, they just did everything backwards. It's like, I talked about it on the podcast. They tried, yeah. they tried copying the Bowie formula, 
but they left out the part where Bowie had a few albums out. Bowie had a few minor hits in America. There was awareness of David Bowie. Um, He, he toured, he, he knew, he knew how to command a stage. So they, they, they tried copying that. But if, you know, I like, as a young comic, if, if a, not that I'm young, but if I was young, <laughs> but I, I, if I were a young comic and, and some big time manager came to me and said, this is what we're doing and we're going to put you in arenas and theaters and you're going to tour the world and it's 50 50. I, uh, okay. Sign the deal. Right. Exactly. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but still in hindsight, terrible. Yeah. Terrible deal. Yeah, You know, and, and that contract went for 10 years and let me tell you, Jerry, held into it. You know, there's a really telling line and and you guys had referenced it sort of um, when you were talking about it. It's that I can't stop anybody from going into the studio and making music. Releasing it, however, is another story. And that's the thing is, is Joe Bryath was not allowed to release any music under his name for 10 years unless he shared it with Jerry. Um, and Jerry wasn't managing him anymore at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and you know, the contract expired either right before or right after Joe Bryth died, right? Because yeah, Joe Bryth died like... in August of 83 and their contract was signed in the summer of 83. I'm sorry, of 73, 73 excuse yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, Jerry, Jerry definitely held him to it. I mean, he didn't hold Carly to her contract. Um, and I believe as, as Hayden Wayne said, he learned from that, you know, mistake of, of being magnanimous and being generous. And he, you know, never wanted to repeat it. That's interesting to know because Jerry in the film says that he let him go from the contract and wouldn't try and, and used, uh, used Carly Simon as proof that he was magnanimous, magnanimous, but, um, so now to hear the truth. But then he, but he says at the very end, I can't stop anybody from making, going in the studio and making music, yeah, releasing I, it on the other hand. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's there, it. There, yeah, I, I heard him say that, but I didn't pick up on that. He'd sure, actually sure, followed no, totally through right, with it. Yeah. He, he seemed like he was trying to give the narrative of I was a nice guy and I walked away and that was the end of it. Yeah. So yeah. hearing that actually does change, hearing that changes my opinion on him just a tiny bit. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, is, I mean, I think he probably felt what else is there? You know, I mean, he, you know, and, and, you know, he said, how am I going to promote the second album? Nobody bought the first one. Right. You know, what am I going to say? You you know, you you didn't like this one. So, but wait till you hear this one, you know, and, and he was right, you know, and Jerry tried, you know, so many things. I don't, another thing that didn't make the film was uh, Jerry started, uh, a, a denim jeans store in New York. It was called the French Jeans Store. He he helped start the the the, the denim jeans craze uh. of mid seventies. He opened up a store, and the funny thing is, is if, if there are many pictures of Times Square, even one in the film, although but I don't make reference to it, where you can see a billboard in the you know up in Times Square. Jerry loved those billboards, um, <laughs> you know, of the French jean store. And, uh, you know, to hear Jerry tell it, you know, I basically bought a bunch of jeans uh, of these French cut 
uh, denim jeans off the back of the truck, off the back of a truck, um, you know, and it's another, you know, m- you know, mob reference, right? Uh, to to Don to Don Brandt, um, <laughs> uh, and I don't know, you know, I, I think he kind of ran that that business into, but you know, if to hear Jerry talk about it, you know, he basically put Jordash on the map. <laughs> But you can't find any evidence of that, you know, anywhere else other than the fact that he right. had this work yeah. called. It would have been called Jaredash if that was true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he produced he produced a disco Broadway musical called Got to Go Disco, which was a huge flop. Um, but there was a really interesting article in New York magazine written about that at the time. And to hear the creators and the other producers of that show, Jerry basically, you know, absconded with, you know, most of the money from that, too. Yeah. So, you know, Jerry, you know, Jerry, Jerry wanted to fund Jerry. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, and he did un- until he couldn't do it anymore. You know, Jerry wrote his memoirs. Um, and he had been trying to find a publisher for them for uh, a while. And I remember that he had started uh, either a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo campaign for, uh, to, to, to publish it. Because I, I, nobody wanted to publish it. And uh, he had actually thrown, a, 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 he threw a launch party for the book before it was even written. <laughs> It, it seems it seems like he puts the cart before the horse quite a bit. It really does. It was hysterical, <laughs> and I thought, "Oh man, this is really sad." And um, I, I, so I I went ahead and I like I threw a hundred bucks at at the campaign, and I just like didn't think about it. And then like many months later, I was like, "Whatever fucking happened to that book?" So I went online and I looked at the campaign. I was the only person oh, who had donated any money. Oh, like, that's shit. sad. Uh, and I felt so bad about it. <laughs> so I was like, um, you know, and uh, I, he finally self-published the book um, and I think it's available on Kindle and I, I bought it. I mean, it's, it's, it's whatever it is, um, you know, uh, but I mean, and, you know, having had my own unsuccessful Kickstarter campaign, you know, to try and raise money for, for the documentary. And this was back in the early days of Kickstarter when, you know, like not everybody was doing it and I didn't really know how to promote it. And I didn't want to put any footage of the movie online. So I did a really piss poor job of it. You know, and I only made, I think I only raised about like three or four grand. And so I didn't get the money and I was like, ah, fuck it. You know, I, I just, it's just not something that I know how to do. Um, so I, I get how difficult it is to, to do those kinds of things. And, you know, and, but Jerry, you know, thought that Jerry just thought that he had a lot, a, a lot more connection than he did. And I, you know, he just, he thought that until the end yeah. and, you know, and I, 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 I would have liked to have spent more time with him and it continued to be in contact with him, but he was always on yeah. and it, yeah. it was hard to be around him. You know, I basically had to babysit him when he showed up for the Florida Film Festival. Excuse me. um, uh, They paid for him to come up. uh, And they paid for a hotel for him. And, uh, you know, they flew him up from Miami to Orlando. And I'm I'm originally from Florida. So 
um, they were super psyched about, you know, playing the movie because it was also from um, a, a, a native, um, which they love. Um, so I had been there for a few days. I was there for a week and they brought Jerry up for the second screening. And I, and I had rented a car for the week and I went to pick Jerry up at the Orlando airport. And, he, and I'm standing out there waiting for him and he shows up and I go, oh, well, let's get your luggage. And cause he had this, like this tiny little bag. And I go, and he goes, I don't have any. He was coming just for like one night, I think, or two nights. And I said, Jerry, he goes, he goes, this is all I have. I go, well, what's in it? And he goes, my toothbrush. <laughs> and I go, but, oh, okay. Um, what, what do you sleep? And he goes, I sleep in the nude. <laughs> just, I don't need anything. You know, I'm just gonna, you know, he just expected that everything was gonna be yeah. paid for. You know, all of his meals were going to be, you know, were going to be paid for. Um, and, you know, the the festival was just like, we're just bringing you up. So, you know, I'm the the, the schmuck that, that you know, followed him around like for two days and, and paid for everything. I mean, I, I didn't mind it. Right. I just, you know, it was great to have him there. But, uh, you know, he just he just always thought of himself as, you know, everything will be taken care of. And, and I think that that's just what he thought till the end. Yeah. And to be honest, like that's what it's like working with Ken. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, so Chip's I know exactly on. what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, I always I show up to Chips with just a toothbrush all the time, constantly, <laughs> constantly. <laughs> all right, listen, uh, it has been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. I hope you had fun. And oh, I did. I had a great time. Now, what what are you guys coming up with next? I can't wait to hear. I don't. Well, I don't know. I don't know if we. I guess it's a. I've actually been getting the texts while while we're uh, while we're sitting here, but we're we're gonna be we're gonna be having Stephen Perkins from Jane's Addiction and Porn Over Pyros awesome. on soon. Um, we actually have a couple. I have to talk with Chip off air, but we we've got we've got some good guests coming on, and um. But you were great, and I would oh, love to you. if 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 you were up for it, I'd love to get you back to to find another artist to cover. Absolutely, yeah, sure. yeah. you know, I mean, you know, if you ever do anything on like Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods, or you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> any other like you know seventies. No, I mean, you no, know, I, I I love music. And as you can tell, I mean, I can talk about it for hours. Yeah, and I yes. Same with um, us. And and what I love I, about I, this, what I love I about it. Target. I mean, I know it was no, about Joe no, Ryeth and you guys brought me on, but I, no, I didn't. You, no, you, this was great. It was no, thank you so much. We, was, we wanted to perfect. hear your story. So yeah. it was it was absolutely great. Do you do you have anything you're working on now that you want people to know about? Um, you know, I'm working on a docuseries, but, you know, we're, we, we were shut down for over a year because of COVID, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it's just been, it's just been a nightmare to, to, to get it back up. But, you know, Joe Bryath was the inspiration for this. I'm, I'm working on something that, that has to do with how the AIDS uh, crisis altered the landscape of theater. It's a six, it's a six episode uh, docuseries, um, you know, and, and just, dealing with with Joe Bryath and and you know the the sadness of the way that he died forgotten it really made me aware of how many more artists right. you know who died who didn't leave a footprint the way that Joe Bryath did you know because they worked in theater which is such an ephemeral medium you know right. once it's it's gone it's gone forever um 
So I thank him for that. Uh, no, I, I had a really great time, you know, and I, I love your podcast and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to get all Sammy Davis jr. On you, but you know, <laughs> you, you, you know I, I, it's, it's, it's a fun time. And, and I, I can't wait to see what else you guys do. Um, oh, so, so thank nice. you for having me. Yeah. Thank and, and, you. and thanks for coming on. It's been great. And hope yeah, again, like Ken said, we'd love to have you back sometime. Yeah. Just, you know, let me know. Uh, happy to do it. All yeah. right. Be listening. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. We'll see you next week.